be. So, if you've missed it, uh, all of our sermons are recorded, they're online. I would encourage you to go as far back as, I think it was four weeks ago, Greg Hook kicked us off with Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, he was married to Sarah, and they had many sons, one of whom was Isaac. If you want to hear more about Abraham, uh, listen to Greg's sermon. If you want to hear more about Isaac and his story, go back and listen to Jody. Jody did a fantastic job teaching on Isaac. We're just going to latch on to, to Isaac, married to Rebecca, and their son, Jacob. Last week, Jason preached on Jacob. Again, encourage you to listen to it. Jacob um, had two wives, so he wanted to marry a gal named Rachel, and in this crazy switcherooski, ended up with Leah, or Leah, um, Leah, or Le- Princess, I, anyway. Um, and then things got a little bit messy, because wanting to have children, Rachel couldn't have children, and so she gave Jacob two of her concubines, Villa and Zilpha. So what we end up with is this really interesting story, where we have uh, Leah has four, four kiddos, um, and then Rachel can't get pregnant, so then two kiddos come from Villa, two more come from Zilpha, and then there's a break, and then three more, again, from Leah, and then finally, two come from Rachel. So we're going to pick up our story here, because it's a really important thing, and you might think uh, we have 12 sons, one daughter, uh, Dina. Uh, she doesn't show up much in the story other than here, um, but we're going to focus on these 12 sons, um, particularly on Joseph. So if you want to follow along at home, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 37. I encourage you to turn there if you like. It's going to be fast and furious. We're going all the way to the end of Genesis today. Um, So here's where it starts, Genesis 30. And I tell you what, Genesis 37, starting in verse 1, it gets crazy. So it says this, when Joseph was 17 years old, so he's a teenager, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Billa and Zilpha. So here they are. Here's the crew. So we have Joseph, a 17-year-old, working for his brothers. I've I Googled a couple different sources. Probably none of them are reputable. But here's an idea of about how old the other brothers were. So they're all kind of in their early 20s, in their teens. And, and Joseph is working for his, half, his half-brothers. All right, here's where it gets nuts. Let's dive in. Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. What do we call that when someone's like, um... Snitch. Like, uh, did you see what they were doing? Dad, uh, they were doing bad stuff. Yeah, snitch. What's another word for that? Tattle, yeah, I call it a tattletale. So strike one against Joseph, right out of the gates. Verse one, he's a tattletale, so it would appear. Um, continuing the story. Now here we are as far as verse two, uh, or now three. Jacob, his dad, Loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. All right, so I was prepping this material a couple weeks ago. We were on vacation in Missouri. I'd wake up early. I would create these little graphics. And my daughters would come and sit and say, hey, Dad, what are you working on? And we got to this part early on, and I was describing this thing of like a dad being like, um, you're my favorite kid. So we started Googling memes, and we found this one. I loved it. Here's another one. So we laugh because there are, there are memes that are out there making fun of it. But we know, for the most part, when someone's like, hey, Dad, who's your favorite kid? You don't come out and say, you. No, you're like, oh, I love you all equally. I love you all about the same. <laughs> the same, not about the same. Don't say that. Uh, 
But Jacob pulls no punches. They're like, hey, 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 dad, hey, dad, which one of us is your favorite? He's like, what? No, Joseph, totally. He's my favorite. And even it goes on, it says, one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, his favorite, beautiful robe. He's like, hey, just in case anybody forgets, wear the robe. <laughs> favorite. When we're out in public, anybody want to know? Favorite one, the one wearing the brand new Melly. Uh, that's him. Um, <clears throat> his brothers hated him. Just feel that for a second. His brothers hated him. Because their father loved him more than the rest of them. I can imagine I would have similar feelings of frustration with my siblings and my father. Uh, they couldn't say a kind word to him, yet they're trying to work together. They all have frowny faces now. So strike two, favorite child. So two strikes against him. Let's look at strike number three. Begins right here. One night, Joseph had a dream. So you imagine, they wake up. Ah, fellas, 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 come here. Gather around. Um, Crazy dream last night. So in the dream, we were all out bundling up grain, and my bundle stood up really tall, and uh, all of your bundles uh, bowed down to mine. <laughs> yeah, just saying, like, in the future, you're probably going to be, you know, bowing down to me. His brother, remember, he's the youngest, 17-year-old, and his brothers hated him all the more. It says. Um, and it says, soon Joseph had another dream. So he's like, fellas, fellas, come back around. Another, another crazy dream. Just time, get, get mom, get dad. They're going to be in on this one also. He's like, ah. Uh. So in this dream, the, the sun and the moon, mom and dad, and uh, one, two, three, yeah, oh yeah, all of you, 11 stars, uh, were, um, were bowing down to me again. And they were now jealous. So they hate him, they can't say a good word about him, and they're jealous of him. Three strikes. Um, so it's just an interesting family dynamic. I mean, you think you come from a messy family? We have a great messy family here, and it gets, it gets messier. And it says, soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock. So they all leave. And I just want to imagine for a little bit. I want to imagine if you're Joseph, and you're laying down in your bed at night, and you're asking this question, like, how's... How's life going? So what are we going to do? We're going to grab it up here as a graph, because I'm a physics nerd, and we're going to do it like this. How's life going? And over here, we're going to say, very good. And down here, we're going to say, very bad. Where would you put Joseph right now at the age of 17? What would you say? How's life going? Sorry if you're up there, you can't see anything I'm writing. Just imagine it's beautiful and wonderful. Jeez. How, how's life going for Joseph? I say pretty good. I mean, his brothers are kind of miffed at him a little bit, so, so I would put maybe somewhere here. And if we look back in time, how would you guess his life has been up to this point? Probably pretty good. I mean, he had to go through like middle school right around here maybe, and so there's a little dip. But, but by and large, Life has been pretty darn good. He's 17 years old. He's laying there thinking about, ah, oh, yeah, we're cruising. Things are about to change for him. Here's how they change. His dad, hey, go check on your brothers. Go find your brothers. They're out tending the, sh the sheep. Go check, see how they're, how they're doing. So he goes. His brothers see him coming from a long way off. And they're like, here comes the dreamer. 
Here comes the dreamer. And you notice they still have their frowny faces on. Uh, They say, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, like a dry well. Let's kill him. Think how much they dislike their brother enough to want to kill him. And and Reuben from the back is like, ah, let's not let's not kill him in as much as let's throw him into one of these empty cisterns and then he'll just die without us laying a hand on him. It's like, uh, tomato, tomato. Um, But what the text does say is that Reuben's plan was to come back later and try to grab his brother out. But his other brother's like, yeah, 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 let's do that. That seems like the thing to do. And so Joseph, looking for his brothers, finds them and is like, oh, Everyone seems pretty angry at me right now. And they grab him, they tear off his coat, and they toss him into a cistern, a dry well. And then it's crazy, because then it says that they had lunch. Like, it says they had a meal. It says while they were eating, which is crazy. I think about, like, you just committed murder, and you're like, oh, let's let's grab a sandwich. Uh, Anyway, they do this, and then there's a caravan of Ishmaelite traders coming, and they're like, hey, hey an idea. Let's just sell our brother and we can make a few bucks off of him. And so this, this, this caravan of Ishmaelite traders comes by and they're like, hey, you want to buy our brother? Like, Is he for sale? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally for sale. Um, anything wrong with him? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a tattletale. Kind of a mama's boy and, um, you know, he has weird dreams. But other than that, and so they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And off they head to Egypt. I just want to zoom in on Joseph again and ask this question one more time. How's how's life going? Rather rhetorical. You've just been almost killed by your brothers. And now you have been sold into slavery. So I think that falls on most days into the very bad. And if we had a very, very bad, it would be down, down there. Like in the matter of a day... His life goes from pretty darn good to really darn bad. Um, let's keep on with the story. So they, they continue on their way down to, to Egypt. So they are up in Canaan, and they cruise around the Mediterranean Sea and end up in, in Egypt, where they come across um, one of Pharaoh's officers. He's the captain of the prison guard. Uh, his name is Potiphar. And the Ishmaelite traders say, hey, do you want to buy this guy? And um, he does. So Joseph becomes a slave in the house of Potiphar. Imagine that's you for a little bit. What would your attitude be when Potiphar's like, hey, go do some work? How much motivation would you have to work for these people? People you don't know, people you don't care about, you're in a whole country, I would be at the bottom. But here's what's incredible. Joseph goes to work, and he crushes it. If you read the text, everything he touches is amazing. Everything he's, to the point where Potiphar says, you know what, you're a really good worker. Um, what, what, how about you just take care of everything I own? Which is crazy if you think about it. He's a slave and he's like, you know what? Everything you do is amazing. Just take care of all of it. And the text says that all Potiphar worried about is what he was going to eat. And so Jacob says, Joseph, sorry, says, okay. And he's like, oh, but can we talk about your wife? And he's gone. Introduce 
Potiphar's wife, who does not have a name other than Potiphar's wife. Uh, What we do know, though, is that she tries to seduce Joseph. And what we do know is that Joseph tries to not be seduced by her. And there's this one scene that's described where she is trying to seduce him and she grabs him and he's in his light coat and he slides out of that thing and runs away. And she's standing there holding the coat and then she's furious about it. And she yells out and she says, hey, that Hebrew slave you've brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me. I pulled that from the NLT. Those are Bible's words, not mine. Um, And he's in the slammer. So he ends up in prison for doing the right thing, for doing the right, for saying no. He ends up in prison unjustly. Let's go back to this. How's life going for him? Someone in the last service said, you know, maybe it got a little bit decent here for a little bit as he's like having a chance to like, you know, be in charge of some stuff. What we, we don't know exactly how old he is in this time period, but we know that there's going to be a span here of many years. So we're going to guess he's maybe somewhere like 19 or so, something like that. And he's back here in prison. Maybe with a little blip of good stuff that happened in between. I want to rewind a second, though, because I think there's something else possibly happening, too. Um, Not only are his circumstances crummy, but when she is trying to seduce him, I want you to read his response to her and look at the integrity in this. Look, he says, she says, come and sleep with me. Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master, your husband, trusts me with everything in this entire household. He trusts me. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you. You're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Talk about a classic, fantastic, wonderful response. I shouldn't say classic. What I mean is a a robust, great response filled with character and integrity. And that response results in prison. So if we were to be graphing something else, we could look at injustice on here. If you have a justice button, his injustice button would be near the top. Like, this, the injustice of this is ridiculous. If we rewind again, look at his brothers. So they, they throw him in a cistern. Who, whose fault is this? So they call him a tattletale, or I called him a tattletale. We, we called him a tattletale. Um, if you go back and look at it, he was reporting to his father the bad things his brothers were doing. Think about Joseph. He's working in his, or in Potiphar's house, and everything he does is done so well. Do you think he just flipped a switch and started doing things really, really well when he all of a sudden he was a prisoner? Not likely. Likely, he's been doing things really, really well his entire life, for as long as he's been working. So you look back and you think, what were the conversations he had with his dad when he was reporting the bad things his brothers were doing? My guess is they were doing some really shady things. And he says, no. We're about more than this, fellas. We're about more than this. So I don't think he's a tattletale. I think he has integrity in his work. And he's being courageous with his father about that. Favorite child stuff? How much of that is on Joseph? How much of his dad choosing him out? I agree, it's weird. But how much of it is on him? None of it. It's not his. That's his dad's. Thinks he's big stuff? They're weird dreams. (laughs) I say they're weird. So when you look at this, Joseph, his brothers hate him and tried to kill him and sold him into slavery. 
And none of it is very, it's not justified. So if you have a big justice button right here, you're like, holy moly, this is not fair. And yet he ends up in prison. So let's continue the story. He's in prison. And this is just, this is just nuts. He's in prison. The prison warden has a buzz cut now because I ran out of ideas uh, for hairstyles. And um, it's weird. It goes like this. I'm just going to read it right from the text. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. So I get that that could happen, where the, the prison warden's like, ah, I don't really like any of you, but you're the one I like kind of the most. You can imagine this happening. But it, it doesn't say, it says, before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in prison. How weird is that? Like, you have prisoners. Can you imagine you go to some prison here in town, and it's like, hey, you're a pretty good prisoner. Why don't you just run the show? And that's what happens. So he goes from being a prisoner to being in charge of the prison. And it says the prison warden have no more worries. Joseph took care of everything. Imagine how weird his resume reads. He's like, and you were in prison? No, wait, you worked at prison? Wait, you were in prison or are you in charge of prison? He's like, yeah, both. <laughs> it's weird. I don't know. It was both. So he's there. He is overseeing the prisoners. And as he's interacting with prisoners, he comes across two of them, which I think is pretty awesome. Oh, and time is going by, thus the scruffy beard coming in. Um, he interacts with all the prisoners, two of which are mentioned in the story. One is the cup bearer for Pharaoh himself. So that's the person who drinks the glass and then hands it to Pharaoh to make sure he didn't die, therefore Pharaoh won't die. And then we have the head baker. I think, I think that's wrong. Head cook? What is it? Head, head baker. And they say this. Joseph looks at him, he's like, hey, why, why do you look so worried? Which I think is pretty cool, that he is paying attention to these people in such a way that he notices something on their face that says, hey, your, your day's not going well. And they're like, no, it's, it's not going well. We had the weirdest, the worst dreams last night. And Joseph says, interpreting dreams, he says, that's, that's God's business. Why don't you tell me about it? So they tell him the dreams, and the dreams are kind of weird, but Joseph's interpretation, he says, hey, cupbearer, here's what this dream means. It means in three days' time from now, you'll be back in front of, in front of Pharaoh, and he's going to give you your job back. And the baker's like, hey, I like the interpretation. Do mine, do mine. And he's like, um, three days from now, you'll be back in Pharaoh, and he's going to kill you. And it happens. Joseph is like, hey, before you go, especially the one who's going to be alive, cupbearer, um, remember we had this conversation. Like, remember, put in a good word for me, please, from Pharaoh. Tell him that I'm a great guy and I'm in prison unjustly, unfairly. Tell him for me. So the prediction holds true. The cupbearer stands in front of Pharaoh. That took me a long time to draw, you all. I should get something for that. Uh, that was forever. Um, and Pharaoh says, basically, you've got your job back. And the cupbearer's like, ah, thanks. And then, like, there's something else I was going to tell you. There's, like, somebody that's in prison. No, can't remember what it is. And says nothing about Joseph. And Joseph is sitting in prison for another two years. So just to do a little math, this is where, the, where we do get a little bit of the, the age again uh, of Joseph in Scripture. At around this time, he is now... 30 years old. Started this whole thing when he was 17. So we have 13 years not going so well. And I would argue right now, sitting in prison, waiting, puts him somewhere in the very bad season of life. 
with probably not a whole lot of great moments in there. Maybe there were some, some days better than other days. But overall, he is a prisoner, he is a slave, and he is not in his country, he's in somebody else's country. Pretty miserable, potentially. And yet, he's working with integrity. He's doing this job in a way that everybody's like, holy moly, what is going on with you? There is something different about you. Um, so yeah, life, not, not great. Um, so time, time passes, and Pharaoh has a dream. Actually, he has two dreams, and you can read about them in Genesis. Um, I'm going to summarize them for you. He basically, um, he has these weird dreams with that, that I'm not going to summarize, Joseph is going to interpret them. Uh, the cupbearer says, hey, I remember there's a guy that was in prison. That's right, Joseph. They grab him. He uh, has a big long beard, and the, the text goes out as far to say as he shaves. So he shaves, stands before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dreams, and Joseph says, okay, here's what the dreams mean. And again, he says, interpreting dreams is God's business. Tell me, tell me that dream. And here's what Joseph says. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the entire land of Egypt. It's going to be milk and honey. It's going to be rain so much, beautiful rain. Your grass is going to grow. It's going to be fantastic for seven straight years. And then it's going to be like a valve shut off. It's going to be dry. And you're not going to grow a single thing. And your animals are going to die. Pharaoh should find an intelligent, wise person and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Pharaoh says, yeah, well played. And he does it to Joseph. He says, I hereby, they say they looked, they couldn't find anybody else as wise as Joseph. I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Gives him fine linen, the text says, his signet ring, and a gold chain to boot. And he has a chariot as he goes around town. People bow to him. He is now the number two in all of Egypt. Pharaoh says, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. He goes from being prisoner to number two. Now, it's interesting because you might say, well, how's life going right here? Presumably a little better. I would argue it is better. But does it cross over into like the good territory? Maybe. I see some faces. You know what's interesting is we later on, as part of this, Pharaoh also gives him a wife. And with that wife, he has some kids. And one of the kids, his name means essentially prosperity in the land of my misery. So you look at it and it's like things are going better, but it's still the land of his misery, he describes it. So still, I would put it below this, in this very bad zone. Some of you are like, gosh, so much graphing in church. I thought I was done with that. Um, so Egypt, approximately this much land. And for seven years, Joseph collects one-fifth of all of the crops, all of the non-perishable goods from the entire region. Seven years of great, great growing, and he harvests all of them, 20%, one-fifth of it all, for seven years. It says that at some point, he loses track of how much we have. Like, you're trying to count it, like, here's some more, here's some more, and he's like, ah, we got a lot. We just got a lot. Hopefully, it's enough. 
And so, as prophesied, the famine hits. Seven years after bounty, it's famine. And everything stops. Everything dries up. And people start running out of food. And they come to Joseph. We need grain. We need food. And he says, yeah, it's going to cost you. So they begin by paying for their food. And then they run out of money. And then they say, ah, we still need food. Take our land. So he takes their land. And they continue to run out of food. And they say, take us. We will be your slaves. So from this point forward, and for the history of Egypt for a long time, the entire people are slaves to the Pharaoh. We're going to pick that up story up next week when we talk about the Israelites trying to get out of Egypt. But this is where this stuff starts. Well, the famine is happening in Egypt, but it's not just in Egypt. It's also happening to the neighbors to the northeast in Canaan, where, as you might remember, Joseph's family still lives, minus him. And they too say, hey, we need some food. We need food. And um, Jacob says, well, you go, and you go, and how about all of you go, except for his daughter, Dina. We don't know where she is, but she's not mentioned in the text. And then what we do know for sure is that Benjamin, his youngest son, from his favorite wife, Rachel, stays home. Again, that weird family dynamic is still there. So the 10 of them make the trip to Egypt to get grain. And they show up, and they bow before this person who they have no idea who he is. Now, he's like, I know you. You're my brothers. He doesn't say it, though. And they look at him and they're like, we have no idea who you are, except for the number two in all the world and the guy who's going to get us fed. And instead of revealing himself, he basically says, no, you're spies. What are you doing? You're, you're spies in this land. And they're like, no, 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 we promise. We're not spies. And he's like, y- yes, you are. And they're like, no, 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 here's the, we, we are a family of 12 brothers, one of whom is no longer with us, Joseph, and then we have a younger brother who we left at home. And Joseph says, tell you what, to prove your story is right, I want you to go and grab this younger brother you speak of, and if you can bring him to me, then you'll convince me that you are not spies, that your story is true. So they, they, they leave. But here's what's interesting, and I want you to, to see this. As they are deliberating, as, as Joseph is saying, here's what the deal is going to be. You're going to have to bring me your youngest brother. It says, speaking among themselves, the brothers, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. Isn't that kind of interesting? This is now, if we're doing our math still, we had seven years of good times, and now we're two years into this famine. So we're 39 years later. So 39 minus 17, we're at 22 years. And the first thing they think about is, it's Joseph. Isn't that interesting? How that thing just lingers with a person? Anyway, we saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. And they Reuben says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen, and now we have to answer for his blood. Joseph can understand this. So he's working through an interpreter, but he, of course, speaks their language. And he says, and it says, now Joseph turned away from them and began 
to weep. I want to look at that real quick. Imagine it's you. Imagine you have been sold into slavery, treated horribly for 22 years, and now the very people who put you there, the people who caused this to happen, come to you, they're bowing before you, and you have all the authority you would ever want. What is your response going to be? Mine's going to have a tinge of revenge in there. If I'm being really honest, it's going to have a tinge of, I'm going to make them pay. I'm going to get them back. I'm going to. Instead, he weeps. He weeps. I want to look at this in just a second, but I just want you to sit on that for a second. Like, if that's you and you're in front of this, and the response is softness, tenderness, tears, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense on a natural level. And I want to tell the story to help us understand maybe what's, what's going on. So here's where we pick up. He says, I'm going to keep one of you in prison while the rest of you go uh, and take the grain back to your families. So Simeon stays in prison while the family, the rest of them, makes the trip back home. They tell their dad, Jacob, hey, here's what's going on. Like, there's this guy, he's going to give us food, but he doesn't believe us, so we need to grab Benjamin and take him with us. And Jacob's like, no, I'm not willing to lose my, my youngest son. I'm not willing to do it. And so they wait. And I imagine Simeon's in prison like, um, guys? Um, but they wait until they essentially are running out of food. So it's desperate, and Jacob says, okay, you can go take Benjamin. They make the return trip. They stand in front of Joseph, or bow in front of Joseph one more time. Benjamin is there. And here's what the text says. Joseph looked at his brother Benjamin, the son of his own mother, Is this your youngest brother, the one who you told me about, Joseph asked? May God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. He went into his private room where he broke down and wept. There it is again. He's in the midst of his brothers where all kinds of feelings could be occurring around anger, revenge, retribution, and instead, tears. Tears again. What is happening He doesn't reveal who he is, though, still. Instead, he loads all of them up with grain, and then he tells his attendant, he's like, hey, the youngest one, Benjamin, stick my silver goblet in his, my silver chalice in his bag. So they sneak it into his bag. His brothers leave with all their grain, and he tells his attendant, hey, that that goblet you stuck in there, go, go find it. So the attendant shows up, he's like, hey, guys, Hey, hey, word has it one of you stole something from us. They go looking through the bags, and they find the silver cup. And they bring them back to Joseph, and they stand in front of him. And here's what's really intriguing, and I think part of maybe where the story turns. This is Judah. So Judah, remember, who was part of this whole thing, throwing Joseph into a cistern and then selling him. He was part of that. He's now in a very similar situation where now he has this younger brother who Joseph has said, hey, he stole it, he stays here, the rest of you can go. And he says, we can't happen. Here's what he says, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up by this boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. 
We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. You see how Judah has, all of a sudden, something has changed. And there's a tenderness towards his father. There's a reality of the situation. There's less selfishness and revenge in him. My Lord, I guarantee to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead. And let the boy return. I'll take his place take him, I'll take his place. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. Just pause for a second. How beautiful is that in Judah? We don't know much about his life, but talk about a transformation of someone who 20 years ago was like, yeah, take him. To like, no, take me instead. I think it's all, we probably do a whole sermon on Judah. And it says, Joseph, though, could no longer stand it. There were many people out of the room. He says, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. And he broke down and wept. Again, third time we have that he's weeping. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. Time out. Look at his response. He's weeping, and then he says to them, don't you be upset. A lifetime of very bad. For Joseph. And he says to his brothers, don't you be upset. You don't have to be upset. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. How, how does this happen? How does this happen to a life? We get more of the story. He says, weeping with joy, he embraces his youngest brother, Benjamin. And then Joseph goes and he kisses each of his brothers and weeps over them. When I stand back and I look at this narrative of Joseph's life, I think we can capture it by saying, really crummy life circumstances. As his entire adult life, really pretty darn crummy. And yet, when the moment presents itself to do something, and he has all the power in the world to do it, the response is instead something beautiful. Not something revengeful, something merciful. Not something that, that proves his, his justice, but something that shows kindness and compassion. The story goes on that he not only exercises forgiveness for his brothers, but he invites them, their wives, and all of their kids to move to Egypt, and he gives them some of the best land where they ultimately settle. And they have kids, and kids, and more kids, and more kids, and more kids, and we'll learn next week in Exodus, there's going to be so many of them that Pharaoh's like, whoa, that's a lot of people, let's enslave them. But... Right now, that's not happening. Right now, they are free and living in the best land in Egypt, all because of Joseph and his mercy and his kindness and his compassion on his brothers, who deserve not that. So what's going on here in a life? What, does it, what, what must be happening that you can live 20 years in miserable circumstances, and emerge with something beautiful. 
I read this commentary, and I want to share it with you because I think it helps to give some answer to that question. So let me read it. Such a calm, certain grasp of the divine shaping and meaning of his life. So it's talking about Joseph, and it's saying, such a confident grasp of God's fingerprints on everything. Not random, God's fingerprints on everything. Such a perspective could not have just sprung up all at once in him. Do you get that? Do you feel that in yourself? You say, I want to be a certain type of person. That doesn't just happen overnight. You don't just wake up all of a sudden being compassionate and kind when you've sowed something different up until that point. It could not have just sprung up all at once in him as he looked at his brothers in front of him. No, more than natural sweetness. It wasn't that he was just a sweet guy. And it's not placability, which I had to look that word up. Uh, oh, it's got moved for me. Thank you, spades. Uh, placability means capable of being placated. Thank you, Webster's. Uh, it goes on. Capable of being pacified, appeased, forgiving. So it's not just that he's a, a nice guy who's sweet and forgiving. Something must have gone into making of such a temper of forgiveness. There must be something else than just natural inclination. And this author writes, he must, he must have been living near the fountain of all mercy to have had so full a cup of it to offer. Isn't that beautiful? That for 22 years, at least, now, now we're beyond that, 22 years and more, Joseph has been living near the fountain of all mercy. And that when this opportunity presents itself, mercy spills over. Mercy spills over. That is not our natural inclination. That is not the way the world would say we behave in this way. And yet, that is how he responds. I want to look at this. When he's with Potiphar, the text says this, the Lord is with Joseph, so he's succeeded in everything that he did. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph. How does Potiphar notice this? It's not like he's wearing some sign Joseph, even himself, he doesn't, it's not like God is like, I am with you, I am with you. He's like you and he's, he's like me. God is with him, but he is trusting and he is doing something and living in such a way that, that Potiphar says, there's something different about you. And he recognizes that the Lord is with him. That Joseph is living close to the fount. That on his lips daily must be things of God in order for Potiphar, who doesn't believe in his God, to know about his God. Similarly, when he's in prison, it says this, the Lord was with Joseph in prison, showed him his faithful love, and the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Again, you're in prison. How do you live in such a way that is so different? What is happening? Joseph living near the fountain of all mercy. But here's what I want to highlight too. The text says the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. And the text here says the same thing. The Lord was with Joseph. So I want to highlight for you and for me that when we are in the midst of this, it doesn't feel like the Lord is with us. 
Am I right? It doesn't feel that way. So living near the fountain of all mercy becomes very difficult. And what I want to remind you of today is that the fountain of all mercy is living near you. Not just near you. In you. So I need to remind myself again and again. I think, Andrew, what does it look like to live near the fountain of all mercy? And what does it look like to be reminded that the fountain of all mercy is living near? I have to remind myself of the truth of who God is, particularly when life looks like this. I have to remind myself. And the time to do it is not always when life is crummy, but it's to have some of those scriptures, some of that passage ready for when the dark days come. So you can go home now. You can do it from your phone now, and you can Google Scripture of God's presence, Scripture of God's goodness, and people will put together massive lists for you. I want to encourage you to be about that. Here's, here's a great one. The Lord your God is in your midst. When you are in that dark, crummy place, the Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you with loud singing. Bathe in that truth. Here's another one. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. From the lips of Jesus, he sends his disciples off before he returns to heaven. And he says this, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I have to remind myself again and again of these realities, of these truths. And here's what's incredible. This story, this story, it points to Jesus. Think of it. We have these brothers. These brothers are deserving of nothing but punishment from Joseph. Nothing but punishment. And yet, Joseph looks at him with all power and says, I forgive you. I love you. I weep over you. That is the gospel. Jesus look, God looks at us through the lens of Jesus, and he sees perfection. He sees son. He sees daughter. I love you. And there is nothing you have to do but believe in me. There's nothing you have to do, nothing you have to earn. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus. I want to live in this way. I want to see in the midst of my crummy circumstances beautiful things emerge from that. I want to be close, living near the fountain of all mercy. Worship team, please come on up. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the stories of your people, the messy stories, the, the real lives, and yet your fingerprints on everything. Oh, I pray that we would be reminded of your goodness, of your mercy, of your kindness, and of the reality that you sent your son for us. That by faith in the name of Jesus, we are saved. 
that we're free, that you look at us through your son and you see perfection. I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would be drawn to the fountain, that when we are bumped, that when our life overflows, that good things spill out, that mercy spills out. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.